welcome to Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Larry Bloom has been noticing what makes New Haven tick, and he has a new book about it. It's called I'll Take New Haven. Larry is a celebrated writer, had a long career writing books, editing the current Sunday magazine, and then he retired to New Haven and found a new calling documenting what happens in New Haven, how it's a good place to retire. Some people take Florida, some take North Carolina, some will take the mountains. Larry took New Haven. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for coming. Good morning, Paul. I lived in Florida, so I I lived to tell about it. Um, Yeah. Uh, This book, well, the timing is interesting. Uh, uh, My book and Maggie Haberman's book come out the same time. uh, About Donald Trump. Between us, yes. Between us, we're going to sell a million copies. But... <laughs> <laughs> this but, is the book, by the way, folks. I'll Take New Haven. It's published by Antrim House. Yes. Uh, yeah, Antrim House. Uh, let me put a little plug in for them. Uh, Randy McQuilkin, the uh, former state poet laureate, runs uh, Antrim House, and he has supported a lot of Connecticut writers. And I just want to get that word in. Well, you support a lot of writers for years as an editor at King Magazine. You're a writer in your own right, having written a whole bunch of books, most recently about Saul Lewitt. I read that book and enjoyed it quite a bit, learned a lot. And Larry, seven years ago, you moved to New Haven, right? That's right. You decided yeah. to retire here. Then you started writing essays for us at New Haven Independent. We love, our readers love. It's just about what your life's like retiring here and what you've discovered. And your subtitle of the book, after I'll take New Haven, is Tales of Discovery and Rejuvenation. So for me, when I read it, I, I would say these are, these are essays about the grace and discovery, aging with grace, and discovering whether climbing East Rock or other parts of New yeah, Haven, yeah. the dog-loving to earn serendip- urban serendipity. But tell us in your words what you discovered and how you were rejuvenated. You know, um, my parents w- uh, went to a retirement community in um, Florida, in Hollywood, <laughs> and um, and no one under 55 was allowed to go there they couldn't visit you couldn't have the grandkids uh they could they had to have a special pass you know i think they had to have a visa <laughs> and like, like you get close to the mic if you don't mind yeah um yeah uh and what they missed was diversity they missed diversity of age of backgrounds all mm-hmm. these things that keep us alive and learning mm-hmm. and uh the previous owners of our condo uh, told us that on halloween uh, the United Nations would arrive at our door. Right. And I didn't quite understand that. So we only bought 500 pieces of candy, which, <laughs> which we ran out of at 620. <laughs> and and uh, what did you do then? Did you turn the light off? Because we do when we run out because people are going to be disappointed. Well, we turn off I the know. Light, we we, right we put a sign up, uh, you know, apologizing and so forth and so on. But the next year, I mean, it was amazing because uh, a dozen princesses would arrive at the doorstep in all colors and all backgrounds. Uh, little kids would come in and play the piano for us. Um, and uh, it, was, it was shocking. It was true. The diversity of age, background, um, experiences. Well, intellectually, you knew that. You've been in Connecticut your whole life. I know. But, but I feel like in these essays, there's a discovery process going on and a rejuvenation. Like, how old, how old are you, Larry? I'm, uh, well... Let's see. I'll be 79 next month. Okay. You're very youthful, incredibly youthful, 79, very active. And here you kind of have this new calling, I would argue. 
you become an urban documenter in New Haven, urban life, senior life, what it's like to be retiring in a city that's a new home for you. You write these wonderful essays. I guess I thought I saw that as the rejuvenation, sort of a new mission. Well, it, it but, is, you know, because uh, the essays, the, the Independent, uh, if I could brag on you for a little bit, uh, has been uh, quite a revelation for us, for Suzanne, my wife, and for me. Um, and this outlet uh, became something important uh, to write an essay, um, on, not on deadline, but whenever I was moved to do it. And, and Paul, you have been such a great uh, editor for me. Well, it's a piece which, of, I, which I needed. Piece I, I needed that. Everybody needs that. As you remember from being an editor, because you were a fantastic editor at Magazine. My sister I was, wrote for you. I remember. I was what, what, what they called the stomach editor. What's I, that? I took writers <laughs> to lunch. Oh. The, the people who actually did the hard work, Nobody's you know, who edited, line edited, and did all that stuff, um, they really made it shine and polished all the work. So one message I'm getting a lot from the packaging of this book, from the essays you write, is that you felt that people maybe from similar backgrounds to yours who are aging, who are maybe right. at middle class, might not think of New Haven as a fun, exciting place to retire. Yeah, I think... Or even move to. And you found that it was a great place to retire and move to. We had a little background uh, because uh, Suzanne's, both sets of grandparents had <clears throat> lived in New Haven. Uh, one on um, Whitney Avenue, one on, um, and one on Elm Street. And... Uh, so we had a little background and a little history. And I always thought of New Haven as the entertainment capital of Connecticut. No question. And, uh, and, and it's a good entertainment city in addition yeah. to be playing the entertainment capital of a state that doesn't have much entertainment. And I thought, you know, years ago in Hartford that maybe retiring mm. in New Haven would be a good idea. Mm. Of course, uh, New Haven had a reputation as not the place to be in that regard. Um, I always kind of liked that because I've lived in New Haven since '78, and I always liked that that people who didn't who had prejudices and heard bad things about city stayed away because I thought people who live here get to enjoy it. We don't need to have people who want to bring suburban sensibilities. To be honest, you know, to what we well, do. you know, I lived for thirty years in in Chester, little town, four thousand people. All of that, I don't think there are four thousand people it's in Chester. Nice I think there's only eight or nine, and they run around whenever the census people come. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And so if something has to be done mm -hmm. in Chester, uh, it's the citizens who have to do it. It's not a professional staff. Mm. And it's also true in a city that, um, that people who live in a city have to take on responsibility and have to help each other and have to encourage each other. And uh, I think in that sense, there's a lot of uh, uh, similarity between a small town like Chester and New Haven. I love the snowstorms when we all help each other and forget to get angry on the road and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, we're talking to Larry Bloom. He's the author of a new book called I'll Take New Haven, Tales of Discovery and Rejuvenation. It's essays about settling in New Haven as a senior. He retired here and then was moved to write about all his experiences dealing with the, the pharmacy that people like that closed, hiking up East Rock to uh, the kind of people he carries out, to shopping in the pandemic. You know, some of this takes place during the pandemic, Larry. Did living in a city or writing about it and hearing from readers make it less lonely? We were all kind of atomized the first I year. Think, I think so. I, you know, I experienced a lot of things that, that people, uh, that people uh, who aren't writers experience. And my opportunity, actually my responsibility, is to try to 
uh, put across, try to recreate what it is that uh, people go through, such as that day at the Stop and Shop when... Well, that's a big deal. What's it like to be in your 70s and need to go get food at Stop and Shop and worried about a pandemic in those first months? I love that kind of... Well, they, they, they had um, they had a good, good intentions at Stop and Shop, the idea of uh, setting aside <clears throat> hours for seniors. <clears throat> right, what they didn't anticipate was at 6 o'clock in the morning thousands of seniors would show up <laughs> de- defeating <laughs> the purpose. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Were you friendly with each other or was it like Mad Max and a little fight? The well, I, I think it was a little bit like um, dodgeball and uh, dodge them, you know, uh, bumper cars. Uh, people with shin guards, you know, uh, protecting their carts. <laughs> you know, And uh, I was here first, you know. <laughs> I got but, that green pepper before you but, did. Yes. Chef Boyardee is mine. And we were warning each other in the parking lot not to go in. Uh, but people said, look, you know, this is my hour. Um, and then by 1 o'clock, the store was empty. <laughs> that's the time mm, it was to go. But it was good intentions. It just didn't, it went haywire. That's the thing. And Larry, where did you buy your condo when you came to New Haven? What street? Uh, Orange Street. So you're right by East Rock, which is so magnificent, East Rock and West Rock. That, you know, that's the thing, too, the idea of walking everywhere. Uh it's so something we had learned in uh, some trips And who abroad. knew, Larry, that it would become a luxury rather than something that you did because you had no option because you didn't have a car. We all love to be able to walk everywhere. I walk to work. I'd right. rather do that than drive. I've seen you on a bike. On your bike. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing, thing is, um, we had become accustomed in our vacations not to use a car. And here we are where we can walk to the gym. We, can walk to, we could walk to the pharmacy. We walk to the markets. We walk <clears> to the park. I can even walk to my dental implant. <laughs> you walked up East Rock, which I found moving. Because yeah. as we get older, we look at what younger people do, and we think, can we do that? East Rock is so beautiful. But also, there was something about walking up it. And you wrote about how you were a little intimidated, but you did it, and you made it. Well, it, you know, it was not news, because thousands of people do that. But it is news, because every time somebody sees something they thought they couldn't do and they could connect with nature, yeah. connect well, with you know, that's every, news. I have to say, I was the oldest person on the rock that day. But there so. are people older than you go up there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I really was going to quit halfway through, but Suzanne said, look, you know, how many years have you not climbed East Rock? <laughs> At that point, it was 78 years. How long <laughs> are you going to wait? <laughs> you know? I get tired going up East Rock. Yeah, I know. But it's nice. It's nice. And, and of course... And the view is magnificent. So two things, though. Paul, you know, in April of 2021 or something like that, we had lunch downtown. And I said, I want to write a book about life in New Haven. And you said, you already have. <laughs> you know, because I've been turning, turning in these essays uh, about this re- rejuvenation idea, about this idea of not being locked away with people my own age, um, not being you know, categorized in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, we have friends, every one of them is younger than we are. I mean, everybody in the city is younger than we are. It seems that way. Um, and you learn to speak Italian. You don't want to, that's or like, speak Italian, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, well, you know, in East Rock, there's a lot of Italian speakers, but they're um, usually in dialect, and that's a little hard uh, <laughs> uh, for me. But, uh, boy, what a mix of people fascinating mix and little kids uh who uh don't have any problem engaging with you it just and you know who my favorite so, character in the book is of course oh luca of course your dog so you got it when did you get luca 
Luca was a pan- pandemic dog, Italian uh, water dog. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he has made all the difference. I didn't, I get, a, 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 apparently I get a dog once every 78 years. This is my first dog. So I learned a lot. I learned a ton. Uh, it reminded me of raising a child. That's what I got from your piece. Yeah. And, um, and the responsibility, yeah. overwhelming. And the, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the exhaustion, overwhelming. You know, I love dogs so much. I don't own one because I don't want to have to wake up early. I always have to walk them or yes, clean yes. the poop. But I, I love dogs so much. And I think about how they've been groomed. They've been developed over the centuries to love people and be there for right. people and connect. Then I think, what is the natural state? Because when I see a dog locked up when I'm going to work and I see them trying to get out of the fence, I think, why should we have all these creatures who are there for us and kind of confined? But then I think if they've been bred over centuries to be connected to people, right. what's the right relationship? Obviously, with Luca, you had a mutually supportive relationship and safety and helping each other, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I think about this a lot because, you know, we all want our dogs to uh, do what we command and, and, and hope that <laughs> Luca's they'll... Luca's got a mind of Luca's uh, own. Yeah. Right, and then they'll be lap dogs and they'll cuddle and whenever you want and all that stuff, but they're animals. And uh, they need their space and they need their uh, routine. And he reminds me of the routine every morning. Uh, and I have to put up with things like him climbing up on top of me and licking my eyes, which you know, no one should have to put up with. I mean, that's... A, so uh, it's it's pretty astonishing to, to have this responsibility for the first time. Well, Larry Bloom has the new book, I'll Take New Haven, Tales of Discovery and Rejuvenation. Larry, would you mind reading us one of the pieces? I picked out my favorite one to edit. I like I love editing your pieces, and this is the one that really hit me the most, uh, called The Talking Hat, Out Loud, The Talking Hat. You know, hat. Uh, it's probably too long to read in entirety, but I, I, I'll read a section of it. Um, Maybe you could summarize the setup. I think it was uh, the first uh, piece I wrote for you. It would have been maybe five years ago at uh, um, uh, Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. I got another Veterans Day piece coming up. Um, right. um, yeah, the talking hat. Um, you know, those of <clears throat> us who who uh, were in the Vietnam War um, didn't exactly get a, much of a reception when we got home, yeah, except, I, except for obscene. Uh, acts. I felt bad about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, as time past that changed and uh, you know it and it often brought me to tears and i thought i should i should write about it so this is a little part of that Uh, and i use the hat which says vietnam veteran on four times um so people could catch my drift um and um unfortunately the dog has eaten all three really of them yeah. The dog swallowed the hat? No, no, he just, he just, you know, chewed on it. Wow. So I would have worn it today, but, you know. Maybe Luca has Luca, feelings about the war. Yeah, Luca didn't like that war. <laughs> but it's not your fault. Okay, the talking hat. More than a half century ago, I wore a uniform of a different hue. The jungle fatigues and cap were manufactured in only one color, olive drab, which the military still refers to drably as color 107. Unofficially, it was the shade of derision during and after America's most divisive foreign war. These days, the uniform remnant I wear on the streets of New Haven hasn't a touch of old 107. On this cap of many colors, 
yellow wording pops. Various versions of red, white, black, yellow, and green recreate medals awarded to everyone who waded ashore, as I did in 1966, or landed in a big silver birds at the airports of Benang, Cameron Bay, or Saigon, including those 58,209 Americans killed and the more than 2,500 gone missing before their Vietnam tours were at an end. The overall effect of this new uniform, then, is one that shouts, no pussyfooting here, no excuse me, but please forgive my participation in that tragic mess. <clears throat> For the modest cost of about $20, it announces Vietnam veteran not once but four times, even on the back, should a fellow pedestrians lagging behind miss the point. And here in New Haven, the changes in response, in response is hard to miss. As I walk the streets, sometimes without being consciously aware, I'm wearing the cap, I'm stopped by strangers. In a city whose residents are by and large opposed to war, the cap begins respectful conversations. Thank you, strangers say, to which I respond, thank you, because your welcome seems inept. Some of these people tell me stories. Others reflect on that miserable time and the waste of that war. Others tell me that nothing has changed, that ignorance and bigotry are still rampant. They despise the chicken hawks in the nation's capital. Veterans of various wars tell me of their personal struggles then and now. A man pushing a ma manual lawnmower in front of a house in East Rock, part of a landscaping crew, tells me of his experience in Iraq. A woman in Edgewood Park, a former Marine, offers details of her tour in Kirkuk as her fiancé rests his head on a picnic table, apparently the victim of a drug hangover. A man walking with crutches and wearing a familiar, a, a similar hat salutes, and I return the sign of respect. A woman in the Amity Wine Store talks of her brother who died from the effects of Agent Orange. Her eyes well up as she says she doesn't know exactly where he was stationed, only he was out there. A middle-aged woman opens a shop door for me and says, veterans always go first. Anyway, that's a part of... Uh, and did you have an encounter with somebody who was a fellow veteran who you would have had... Was that a different essay where the person came from a very different political background and you found common ground? Yeah, that's a different essay. Uh, um, because, you know, uh, it strikes me, because I, you know, I think about those years and I think about... Uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned to you, Paul, that... I taught uh, three at Kent State three days before the uh, before the massacre. Wait, there. in May nineteen seventy, you were May fourth. You were do, what was your role? I was a guest speaker uh, on campus in, at uh, at Taylor Hall. What what were you capacity were you speaking? Um, beats me. I don't know. Uh, as, a, as a as a as a writer and editor, really uh, at the journalism department, and that's where that hall Taylor Hall was where the the deaths occurred. Oh my goodness! So uh, anyway, those years are stuck in my head. And uh, what did you do in Vietnam? Oh, I was uh, I was in what they called the Jewish Infantry, which <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> which is the Quartermaster Corps. They figured we knew retail, so uh, they put all the officers who, you know, all the Jewish officers that they put in supply. And um, and where were you based? Uh, in a place called Chuiwa. Uh, which is up the coast of Vietnam, of Vietnam, and uh, and a little bit in Cameron Bay, a few months, and you know, I was a lucky one, you know, I didn't, uh, but so many were unlucky, so many 
didn't come home or didn't come home in the right way. Larry Bloom came home and then came home again to New Haven in his senior years to become one of our chroniclers of daily life in I'll Take New Haven, a new book he has published, published by Antrim House. Larry, you grew up in Connecticut? No. Uh, well, yes. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Connecticut's Western Reserve. In, oh, uh, Ohio. You know, in northeastern Ohio. And, uh, you know, I was going to go to Case Western Reserve University, uh, but uh, I didn't have... Uh, I graduated in the top 99% of my high school class, <laughs> which, which people were impressed with. But, you know, once, once they thought about it <laughs> and did the math, you know. Uh, but, uh, but Connecticut looked awfully familiar to me when I first came here for a wedding in 19... Not one of mine, not one of my weddings, but somebody else. Um, and uh, it looked awfully familiar, and I understood why. You know, it's the same landscape. And, uh, and you grew up, when did you get into writing? How did that career happen? I always knew, you know. Uh, yeah, me too. The Elsa brothers wrote a book. And I was in eighth grade and I read it about, I think it was called The Journalist or Newspaper, something. I uh, and I thought, that's me because I'm, I need to be this because I'm so shy. I felt the same way. The notepad pad is the visa where you could talk to people. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you, you could wear stuff. a trench coat and the girls would love you, you know, that kind of stuff. And then but, you got into journalism after the war? No, after uh, I, I, I studied journalism uh, in college. And, um, and then um, so I always was working for a newspaper. And then I got into Sunday magazines, which was, that was a revelation for me. I Those did, used to be good. They were really, really they still good. are at the times, but the current had a real one. You had a real we, one. We had a real one, and we, you know, really a, liked it. A lot of really good Connecticut writers uh, sort of graduated from that, like Wally Lamb, and uh, so many, so many who went on to to do uh, great work as, in fiction or nonfiction. Um, they, <clears throat> it was a good place to get published. Yeah, and uh, those are well, those were the heyday of newspapers when it was more than. It was a real business. You know, it was making a lot of money. You were the first one to publish my sister when she was... Uh, oh, really? She had been um, left a bad marriage, come up north, had never gone to college, but was a really good writer. And she right. sent you something called The 24-Hour Getaway about leaving her husband and uh, abusive relationship, and you, you published it. It was very... gave her very good editing. Oh, well, I, I remember... The, the, and she went out to write You know, the career. personal essay, <laughs> I mean, just sort of tied this up, I think... Um, the personal essay was the thing that made me uh, the happiest about being a magazine editor. And that's what you're doing as a writer with yeah. this book and these essays. When you're writing the personal essay, for whom are you writing the essay? For yourself, for the subject, for the reader? How do you balance those three? Well, you know, the word essay is not something I ever considered. I never considered myself an essayist. Although this is, of course, what they are, but I'm a storyteller mostly. So... Uh, when I get moved by something, I try to reconstruct how it was I was moved. Because I figure if I can do that for myself, yeah. if I can set up the story in the right way. With the beginning of it, something like uh, uh, John McPhee used to say, it's a flashlight. The beginning is a flashlight deep into the piece. Uh, a little bit of a promise. Uh, and uh, But then... Uh, I think an essay is quite a bit like any kind of piece of fiction uh, in terms of form. Uh, 
the climax comes where it comes. It's not announced in the beginning. This is very different from tradition, traditional uh, uh, journalism where, you know, you have to have the who, what, why, when, how, what if, and all that stuff <laughs> in, the, in the first sentence. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I kind of think of uh, uh, even people like uh, Edna Buchanan who, who interpreted that in ways. She was a cop reporter in Miami. Uh, and one of her leads was something like, uh, about a about a guy who uh, who who is robbing uh, a KFC store, and the security guard uh, killed him. And uh, her lead was, John Smith died hungry. Oh, you know, I mean, in a way, there's new ways to interpret this, you know. But it seems to me that, um, and it's a challenge because you're asking people who are very busy to take a little time and read a story rather than tell them what all the answers. Well, if you take the time, and I recommend that you do, to purchase I'll Take New Haven, you'll read about how someone found new purpose and energy in life as a retiree, but essayist in New Haven, Larry Bloom. Larry, how do people get I'll Take New Haven? How, how do what? How do people buy the book? Oh, uh, order in the bookstore will be uh, available uh, after next week. I think uh, uh, October 14th is the pub day. Or they can write to me at Larry Bloom uh, at Gmail. Is there a way to buy it on the web? Uh, gosh. I should have researched that, don't you think? We're going to research it, Larry. I okay. got the five W's on the case. Larry Bloom, thanks for coming on. Thanks for all the essays you write for The Independent. Oh, and my I hope pleasure. that you continue to have a wonderful and rich life in New Haven and that we continue to be able to read about it. Thank you. Thanks, and thanks to Nora Grace Flood behind the controls. Boy, has she been doing a great job filling in for Harry Dross as he has this week in North or South Carolina. Staying one step ahead of the hurricane. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day all night and all weekend long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>